welcome to the Integral Yoga Podcast. I'm joined today by Reverend Bhagavan Metro, who is a certified Integral Yoga instructor, and he was ordained as a minister of Integral Yoga in 1980. He has served as a member of the Integral Yoga Ministry Board for over 15 years. He embraces and teaches all aspects of Integral Yoga with an emphasis on married and community life. So thanks so much for being here today, Bhagavan. I want to start by asking you this question. Uh, I've gotten to know you a bit over the last few years. Um, and I would say to me, you're not the stereotypical person who becomes interested in, in yoga. I know you have uh, so many other skills. You're a builder, you're an athlete. Um, you seem like the type of person who would really thrive in kind of the traditional uh type of society that we have set up, um, yet you've decided to live in an ashram uh, and start your family here and dedicate your life to yoga. So why have you chosen to make this your path? Well, first, I'd like to say thanks for having me on your podcast, Avi. Uh, I enjoy seeing your podcasts and uh, really respect what you're doing here, find you to be a wonderful interviewer. The last time you interviewed Bhavani and I, we had a great time, and uh, I look forward to the next hour or so. Thanks, Bhagavan. Mm. So, to answer your question, uh, I was raised in a professional baseball family. My father was a professional baseball player, and uh, we he eventually was in the major leagues as a manager, coach, scout. Um, and in our life, we had the, I had the opportunity to experience that high life, if you please, you know, that big life, that successful life. And we stayed in all the great hotels. We ate in all the great restaurants. We traveled to all the great cities. We went through the all 48 states. Uh, each year, my dad would travel between his old job and his new job. Either he got fired and had to go down or he got promoted and went up. And we, uh, we got to see, I got to see life, you know, at its highest level in the U.S. And I looked around and I said, well, this is wonderful. It's all well and good, but it doesn't really satisfy me. And it didn't satisfy the people who were around him. My father was a wonderful man. He had a great sense of joy in life a great sense of service. So I saw that that's what made him happy and not having everything. So I started thinking about, well, what is this all about and how can I get it? And of course, I went through a long search, went through all the Christian religions, uh, spent some time studying and participating in uh, Southern Baptist, which my mother was, uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Catholic, which my father was, uh, Catholicism, uh, touched base with Mary Baker Eddy, so forth and so on, everyone right all the way through. But I couldn't find what I was looking for there. So through uh, blessings or fate or karma, I came across uh, in California in 1969, a teacher named Eknethi Warren. He was a meditation teacher a Fulbright scholar at the University of California in Berkeley. And I went to his classes and in his class, I learned to meditate because he was a meditation teacher. And he also taught uh, the, 
this, he spoke on the saints of Catholicism in India. So I came in touch with all the saints and this man had a deep, deep peace about him. Just amazing. You walked up to him and he, you just felt like peace was in the entire room that he was in. And I'd never run into anything like that. So for about uh, two and a half years while I was working in California, Bobani and I, we were married at the time. This was in 69, 70, 71. I studied with him and I got a real deep understanding of, of Eastern spirituality through this man's teaching because he was a realized master, what they call a realized master. He never booked himself or promoted himself as that, but he was. He started his own ashram in uh, Tamales, California, Ramagiri Ashram, which is still there and still functioning. At least it was the last time I was out. I think it's still there now. So then Bhavani and I uh, got tired of, of living the hip life in Berkeley, and we moved back to Colorado, where we had come from. We went to high school together in Colorado. And in Colorado, there was no spirituality. I mean, these were the days when, Avi, you couldn't buy yogurt in a grocery store. You couldn't find yoga. You had to really be searching. There was no, Lilius was on TV. I don't know if you know Lilius Foland, but she was the first, first famous yoga teacher. And she, is, she has come here to Yogaville. We've, we've had her here, hosted her here at Yogaville. Wonderful now. She's an, uh, an older grandmother now, but she was an 18, 19-year-old girl doing yoga on television. She was the only person you could ever see doing yoga. But uh, because of Sri Gurudev's arrival here in 66, he had started institutes around the country. So one day I'm looking at the paper, and they had a little religious section in the Rocky Mountain News or the Denver Post. And I was looking. And I open it up, and here's a picture of Sri Swami Satchidananda, who's going to be speaking at Loretta Heights College. And I, I remember seeing him on posters on walls and telephone poles in Berkeley because he was speaking in San Francisco. But because I started studying with a traditional teacher who said, don't jump around between your gurus, I never went and saw Gurudev in California, even though we were there two and a half years, he was speaking the whole time in Berkeley, off and on, you know, he'd come in regularly. So we went uh, back, when we were back in Colorado, we went out to see him at Loretta Heights College. And we took some friends with us who, we, had, we were going to Unity Church in Boulder, Colorado at the time. And we took some friends with us. And by then we understood yoga pretty good. And we knew uh, the mark, of a realized master, you know, that deep peace and wisdom and gentleness, kindness, that love that they emanate. So Swamiji Gurudev comes walking out on stage like a king. He sits on this, this wooden chair they had made for him, like a, a throne. <laughs> There's these huge uh, flowers next to him, probably four feet tall, these flower arrangements were on either side. And he ohms us in, you know, vibration in the room, gets that peaceful, full vibration. And we're sitting there and he started to talk. And I can only remember one thing that he said. He said, some teachers will tell you God is within. But what is without? What is this? All of this. Mm. And he said, this too is God. Mm. 
even in those days, I was having that experience. And that got me started with Swami Satchidananda, that, that time, that moment. And at the end of the night, he did Om Shanti. I'd never heard it done like this. And he just shut the room down. And I felt my mind go into this deep, deep state of peace and satisfaction, santosh, real contentment. I was sitting there in the chair and I didn't even hear anything going on around me. I'm sitting there in this deep, deep state as if he had just opened this up in me. And then I heard some shuffling around and I opened my eyes and everybody was getting up and leaving. And I didn't even know I was in that state of deep meditation. So I stood up and I couldn't, I couldn't come back into this the normal world, you know, I was too locked in back there. And but Babani started elbowing me because she always keeps me <laughs> on the right track. <laughs> come back, come back here, you. And later on, uh, so we, we went out. Our friends didn't experience it. We went out, we got in our car and started back home. And I started telling her, and she said, I experienced the same thing. But Babani, having a more outgoing personality, was able to come out of it quicker than I was. <laughs> So that was our introduction to Gurudev and spirituality. So until that moment, were you still maybe holding on to a bit of, um, I don't know if skepticism is the right word or, you know, one foot in both uh, worlds? I guess my question is, you know, like what broke you through? towards like the side of, of like, wow, this is really going to be my life. Like I'm, I'm going to devote myself to, to this now. Is it like a process for you to come to that place? Yes. It was a little bit of a process. Of course, uh, even after that deep experience, I came back to a normal kind of consciousness where I was in the world and the world had its problems and I had my problems and I had my job to do in the world. And I had a big family. We had four children by that time. So uh, I, I did go back and forth and I wasn't sure, you know, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to be in. The next year we met Sri Gurudev. Uh, he came into Denver and we saw him at the airport. And then we rode up with him to uh, a retreat site in Colorado and they were having a big retreat. So he was there and I hadn't met him yet, but my daughter, Sharda, who was outgoing like her mother, asked him at the airport if she could ride with him mm. <laughs> after retreat. He had some Indian men with him, you know, it was very uh, calm in the car. <laughs> Here's my little daughter, Sharda, she jumps in. I think she was eight or nine at the time. And she jumps in and she's talking and everything. <laughs> and and uh, he's, he's holding her and loving her. So it was a beautiful situation for her and for our family. Then when we got to... Uh, the retreat site, she came running over to the table. I was sitting in the back of the table with some friends and she came running over to the table and she said, the Swami wants to meet my daddy. Mm. So I got up and I, you know, you know, that heart started pumping, you know, oh my God, I'm going to meet a guru, you know, up front, the real deal. Cause I knew he was the real deal from the first time I saw him. So I <laughs> walked up and there was a big crowd around him. And when he looked at me, it was like the parting of the sea. Everybody just went like that. And there was a clear line. He was standing about 20 feet over there. And Sharda runs up and she's standing next to him and he's holding her like this so gently. And 
I was always proud of my intellect. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be smart here and I'm going to really impress him. So, you know, he knows I'm serious about this. <laughs> so he looked at me and said, you have a lovely daughter. How did you get her? First mm. words he ever said to me, how did you get her? My mind went seven. <laughs> 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 and it, it hit me on every chakra. <laughs> mm. I I stood there and, and my mind just stopped. It just locked up. And I, and it seemed like it took um, minutes, but in fact, it had only taken, you know, a split second for all this to happen. And I looked up at him, he's standing there laughing. And I said, this is him, this is my guru. And so from that time on, it was full forward. No looking mm. back. Mm. <laughs> I want to ask about being in the presence mm -hmm. of um, of a person like this, yeah. um, and the importance of of just being an example, right? Like the difference between you know reading a lot of deep truth in spiritual texts or being told by others um, wisdom. My question is. Do we put maybe too much emphasis on on words as opposed to simply just being the example uh, and and having faith that that's going to lead to the most positive outcome instead of telling other other people you know what we think is good for them or whatnot just try to be an example for them and allow them to draw from that uh, what they want. Um. Be an example, certainly. I mean, if we're not living the life, why are we talking about it in a way? You know, why would we, we, we come out with words that are hollow or empty to us and try to tell other people about it? So certainly it's important to teach what we know, teach what we live. And a lot of teachers come in and they're new and they say, oh, you know, I, I, I don't feel capable of teaching. I don't feel like I'm a teacher, but they have learned something and they have embraced it. Otherwise, they wouldn't want to teach it. So if a person has taken a great course in Hatha Yoga, like our teacher training, and they come in and they say, well, all I know is this. Well, good. Teach that because that's what you know and that's what speaks to you. So we want to, we want to teach what speaks to our heart. Yeah. But the presence is the important thing, certainly. I mean, the, the presence of a master can move you in ways that nothing else can because of their energy. They're living it. They are a living example of that self. So when they're a living example, that energy is there with them. So not only do they have the words to open you up with, but the energy, which is just what Gurudev did to me in the first meeting. He just sent me all this energy and it just exploded all of my past beliefs. I was just like, that's nothing anymore. I need to do this. So that's the power of the master. So presence is very, very important. Hmm. I've heard you, um, you know, mention life is for fun. And I've heard Gurudev say something similar to that too. And I love to hear that so much. 
my question is, why do you think it's so challenging for, for people to embrace that sort of perspective and outlook on life? Well, that's because we don't know it's for fun. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it has to do with the identification uh, with the body and the mind. If we think that we are the body and the mind, life really is hell because the body is constantly in danger and the mind is constantly having a problem. So we, we need first, if we're going to really experience life is for fun to solve the problem of the mind. It needs to be solved. We can't enjoy it until it's solved. Not fully. We can enjoy parts of it, of course. You know, we can enjoy, you know, eating, dancing, you know, having relationships, having a job, all of those things we can enjoy. But those things are temporary things. They're not going to last forever. You know, someday the body's going to die. So all of this someday is going to end. We don't want to think about that. We don't want to investigate that, but it's an investigation that must be done. The, every, every master, every teacher says, I'm not the body and not the mind. But if we identify with that, we're in a very, very precarious position because we have to protect those two things, the body and mind. And we have to try to do something to further them in a way. But through yoga, we learn that we are not that, and we are not that. We say, oh, okay, we're not the body, we're not the mind. So there's no problem in that. But what, so I'm not the body, I'm not the mind. What, what am I? Well, the immortal self. <laughs> I am, <laughs> right? So Master Shivananda said this. You know, That was one of his big treaties. I'm not the body, I'm not the mind, roaring like a lion. Immortal self I am. So through the practice of yoga, we actually come to have an experience of that, an experience. And when we have that experience, there's no longer any question. So the practices of yoga are designed, specifically designed for us to go to have that experience at some point. It's a long, difficult path. There's no doubt about it. It's, this is not easy. But it's possible. And it's for fun. <laughs> of course it's for fun. It's all for fun. But the fun won't come in fully until we're realized. Because we don't, we, we, we get afraid, right? There's fears. You know, what happens if I step out here and a snake bites me? What happens if I wreck my car? What happens if I lose my money? What happens if my relationship falls apart? What happens if I don't get the job? What happens if I'm not enough and I can't be what I need to be in my life? What, why is it that no matter what I think, I can't find happiness? See, all of these problems come in, and therefore, tension is created in that, deep tension. But in realizing that we are the self, there's no tension left. There's no tension in that. We're not the body. We're not the mind. What difference does it make to us what happens to these things? It's like your car. You may love your car. You may really like your car. I got a beautiful car. I like my car. But if I wreck my car, it doesn't hurt me. I may be sad for a minute. Oh, darn, lost my car. But I can get another car. 
And the body's the same way. But we don't realize that. We, we think in terms of one lifetime, and it's not enough. We need to think in terms of lifetimes and expansion so that if we do lose the body, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> it's the end of the world, but it's not the end of our life. <laughs> so like a deep knowing that the me inside me is not going to end when my body dies. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not, it's a knowing, but it's a, it's a, uh, an experience, you know, you absolutely know. It's not theory. It's not a thought. It's not a feeling. It's knowledge. I know that I'm not going to die. I can mm -hmm. never die. I'm the eternal immortal self. But I that aspect, uh, the immortal self, which the me is, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Is, that, is there still um, a uniqueness there in, in the me that is a part of the immortal self? Like, right, is it just the same immortal self? Or is there still that diversity, that uniqueness? Maybe we're talking on the level of souls. I don't know the correct word to, to give it to. But is there still a uniqueness in that aspect of me that is the immortal self? Uh, yes, if you think of it is how I'm me as immortal self is expressing through this body and mind in the moment. Yes, there's uniqueness. If you became realized, you wouldn't suddenly become Swami Satchitananda. As a, you know, you wouldn't don the orange robes and grow the beard and, and walk and talk and eat and think like him. No, it's not that at all. It's the expression of the self through this body and this mind. So then the self expresses fully through this body and mind, unfiltered, and that's important, unfiltered. So no, you don't lose it. Nothing is lost in that way. I mean, it, it, if someone's realized, if Avi becomes realized, you're still going to be doing podcasts. You know, maybe you are now. I don't know. If you're realized now, you're still doing podcasts. And if there's further realization for you, you'll still be doing podcasts. Maybe, or maybe, you know, someone will see this in you and make you a guru. <laughs> you know, and you you have to go start your own ashram. Who knows? I just I just love the outlook of of seeing it as fun. That just resonates so much with me. Um, you know, aside from the connection with uh, a mortal self, um, there's there's something else that also really helps me with it and it's uh, appreciation and gratitude for even my time with this body and mind that I've had so far. So it's really not so hard for me to think, well, I'm not owed any more time. So even if it ends, and this is all the time I've gotten with, you know, this body, mind or car or whatever it is, like, yeah, I might, there might be a part of me that's disappointed that I don't get more time, but the, the higher level of myself the more mature level says, well, that wasn't owed to you anyway. Right. Right. You get what you get. Get what you get. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's no changing that. You know, that's yeah. not something that we control. You, know, yeah. you can't get one more breath. All the scriptures say that. But that, that, that alleviates a lot for me too, because I think, you know, culturally we, we tend to use language to almost assume that, we have a certain amount of time or right? when this happens, when that happens. And more and more, 
uh, I get a little uncomfortable when that sort of conversation comes up because it doesn't feel like it's in alignment with what really is to me. Right. right it is. Yeah. Don't plan too far in advance because it may not get here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can plan, but you have the perspective that it's just for fun that I'm just kind of playing around with these plans and yeah. 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 Which, no, what John Lennon says, I think, you know, people plan God laughs. <laughs> yes. That brings you into now that, that kind yeah. of attitude really brings you focused in this moment. Because this moment is the only time we can have any power or influence. We can't influence the future. We can think now and prepare ourselves for the future, but we can't do it now. We can't do the future in this moment. We, the past is gone. We can't influence the past anymore. But now is the moment we can influence. This very moment we are in, where this, this beauty of our being is expressing itself through this body and mind in this moment. That's what we can, we can influence. Mm. I also wanted to ask you about silence, and maybe that relates to that a little bit. Like, um, when I'm really present, mm -hmm. I find that I, I fall in love with silence, mm -hmm. right? Good. The need to speak words um, is not as common. So do you think more and more people are going to kind of have um, this experience of falling in love with silence. Have you considered that at all? And, and what's, what's preventing um, maybe people from having that experience already of, of falling in love with silence? Well, everyone has this experience of silence, um, but they don't recognize the value of it. Let me put it that way, the beauty of it, if you please. You say you fall in love with silence. Yes, it, it, peace is such a beautiful, beautiful experience. It's the most beautiful experience I think we can have is silence. Because in that silence, there's no problem. It's a complete emptiness of any problem. There's no desire in it. It's desirelessness. There's no stress in it. There's no future in it. There's no past in it. There's nothing there except peace. And Gurudev said, through his experience of it, that peace is my God. So he, was, he, he held it in that reverence. What we just need to do is, is spread it around, let people know how we find it uh, and how we found it and see if we can teach them in some way to find it. There, there are techniques actually to finding peace. You know, you say mantra japa. So you sit there and, you know, om namah shivaya, om namah shivaya, om namah shivaya, om namah shivaya, and the mind runs around. And then gradually after some time, the mind quits running around so much. And it kind of fixes a little on om namah shivaya. And then the, the uh, thoughts of the mind start vacating. Okay. And then the whole mind gets fixed on om namah shivaya. And the thoughts are all vacated. They're gone because of the 100% concentration on that mantra. So if we are doing that and then we start experiencing a, a slowness in it, it, look, it starts getting like it feels slower and there's more space in that. And while we're doing the mantra, if we look at everything else that's happening, nothing else is happening. 
when we get 100% focused on it, there's nothing else happening in our mind. It's simply the mantra and then this deep peace that's behind it. So then if we turn our attention a little away from the mantra toward the peace, the mantra itself will disappear and we'll be left in that silence. So it's a, it's a classic technique, classic yoga technique of doing this. That's one way, many, many other ways. For myself, I'll just share like kind of how it works. Sure. Uh, for me is, is um, you know, and what I heard uh, Swami Satchitananda say, that really hit me hard too uh, when he said that pieces is God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so I feel that way too. At the same time, the the nature of things seems to be that, you know, if I exist in that peace, there'll come a time when I'm going to move out of it. So I'm I'm dwelling in the peace meditation, mm-hmm. and and then I'm moving out of it. Okay, the time ends, and now I'm getting up and I'm going to work and I'm taking care of family things and and whatnot. Um, and all that's okay. Right. So it's almost, um, for me, it's, it's, it's enjoying being in both places instead of saying like becoming addicted to one, one or the other. Um, like my mind, it just needs a break, right? Like I love my mind. I love what it can do. It's, it's amazing, but it it needs a time out just like anything else needs to take a break. That's what Pete's is for. Did you hear me? Yeah, that's what pizza is for. Pizza. Oh, pizza. pizza. <laughs> that's what pizza is for. Yeah. have <laughs> used to have pizza parties with us, you know, yeah. many, many pizza parties. And uh, there, sure, there needs to be some let up from anything we're doing because it's effort to stay in peace. We have to watch the mind the whole time we're in there to make sure that it's it's not sneaking in, you know, a little mouse sneaking in and disturbing it. So we have to be very aware. We have to be aware without really focusing on the mind because as soon as we focus on the mind, it comes alive because it's our energy that brings it alive. It has no life of its own. Mm. It's us that does it. Mm. So we want to focus on that peace. And then sometimes we get tired. Okay, I've had enough. I want to go do something else. Mm. So we can go, you know, dance, sing, watch TV, view movies, enjoy things with the family, but always going back to the peace a few minutes each day, at least a little time each day, go back to the peace mm. and dwell in it and get the flavor of it. Because you said something very important on your path. You, you love it. You love that peace. You love that feeling. And when you get so you love it, that's when you're starting to really arrive. And yeah. I love it. And it's not an all the time practice can't be right. And yeah, sometimes I feel a little frustrated that it's so common to categorize things as um, better or worse instead of coming to a place where there's just an amount of time that's appropriate for some things and an amount of time that's appropriate. Like we don't need to be competing all the time uh, right. in terms of, of, of which is better. Um, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a a different subject uh, in a way. Uh, 
there are certain things that are painful that are going to cause pain. They may be pleasant in the moment, but they're, but they're going to cause us pain later on. Uh, for instance, uh, I know that not everyone's going to appreciate this. Well, let me say alcohol or drugs. They, they bring you a, a pleasant situation in the moment, but the future, tomorrow, you know, you're going to be down and hung over. So they're not going to be able to bring you that all the time. So, you, so some people say, well, drugs are bad. But I wouldn't use the word bad myself because I believe everything leads us to the realization of ourself. Everything. Every experience we have. So you can say in that regard, if every experience leads us there, then no experience is bad. No experience is wasted. No experience is useless. However, some are a little tougher lessons than other. Right? So if we can understand the nature of a difficult lesson, we may be smart enough to avoid it. And so why not? You know, why put ourselves through more pain than we're already going through in life, right? So it just makes sense and to uh, not hurt ourselves. But I don't consider that bad. So if I'm talking to a friend of mine, my friend says, man, Bhagavan, I am strung out on weed. Okay, I just can't stop doing this. I'm not going to say, oh, you terrible boy, you know. No, no, no. I'm going to say, well... Are you, are you suffering enough yet to give it up? Mm. <laughs> Has it hurt you enough? Because yeah. nothing sensual can bring us peace. Because peace is the absence of sensual, sense, senses of sensual pleasure. It's the absence of it. It's, no thought can bring us peace because peace is the absence of thought. So as we are doing these things, if we can add some peace in, and we see the beauty of peace, we will naturally give those things up. We'll just naturally say, oh, well, you know, I, I, I had this, drank this bottle of wine last night, and this morning I feel horrible. I can't enjoy my peace now because I feel so horrible. I can't even wake up. You know, I'm laying in bed, oh, with a headache. You know how it is. You, I, I don't know. Maybe you didn't do that. I did, certainly, when I was younger. No, uh, I certainly did, yeah. <laughs> enough to learn the lesson. Right to learn the lesson that that can't that that's not it. <laughs> it's not it. It's not what I'm looking for. I think there's something that you said that's very important though. Is um, it, it doesn't seem to work that well when we tell other people what they should and shouldn't be doing. That there this freedom component is extremely um, an important element of the game, so to speak. That someone needs to come to the discovery themselves in their own time. And sometimes it's really frustrating when there's people that we care about and love and we watch them do things that it's very clearly uh, to me that, you know, that's a very destructive practice that's not helping them in their lives. But, you know, I mean, maybe sometimes if we really come from a place of love, we can influence them to, to open up and see. Uh, but ultimately, they, they really need to come to it in their own time, don't they? In their own time, that's the key. I mean, this, you know, the, the problem with doing yoga is that you get so happy you want to tell everybody else about it. <laughs> and yeah. that really doesn't work because uh, everybody's moving at their own pace and on their own path. And their path may be 
far away from what you know or have experienced. So it's not possible to judge a person on their own path. So it's much better to say um, to ourselves, well, they're going to get here eventually in this life, in the next life, in the next life. Everyone arrives. Everyone goes back to their home, you know, their inner home, to their self, to who they really are, eventually. So it takes patience to teach. You can't just jump out there and be hammering everybody off. <laughs> and that's, that's a difficult lesson for teachers to learn. Right. And then I think back to being the example and having some, some faith in that, right? That it's, if, if, I, if I do have a chance to influence those that I care about and love, it's probably not going to be from me telling them what to do. It's much more likely that they'll be with me and they'll notice something. If, if it's genuine, if my growth is genuine, they'll notice something. And then maybe in their time inquire, well, I'd like to have some of that too. Yeah. And it, it's a matter of love and respect. Uh, if, if you love and respect the teacher, you'll be open to, their teachings. So first the teacher needs to establish themselves with love for the student, needs to show the student how much they love. And of, of course for a guru, that's a simple matter for Swami Satchidananda because he did love us. But even with his love, not everybody came to him. Not everybody resonated with him. So it's important for a teacher to do two things. First, to lead with love, so that love is the thing. Respect, um, compassion, and, and a deep listening. I love Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings at Plum Village. Listen deeply to people. Know what they're saying. Know what they're feeling. Know what the source of their anguish is. And then maybe through gentleness, through love, through compassion, you might be able to help them move along. If you can, wonderful. If you can't, then just maintain your own peace and, the, and feel that presence within yourself and that presence radiates. You, you, when you're in the uh, presence of a person who's peaceful, deeply peaceful, you feel it. So they'll feel it. and Maybe, but it's a long trip. You know, don't think of it as one lifetime. Mm. Yeah, the listening. I've been, I've been considering that a lot that, you know, to really deeply listen and to be there fully. And then maybe when I speak, it comes from a deeper place. That's a result of the active listening. Yes. Yes. Um, active or compassionate listening. Yeah. Great practice. Bhavani and I, have taught that for years and years to couples. If you listen deeply to one another, your problems will be much, much, much less. But the tendency, you know, in the mind is like you develop like an argument, right? Someone's yeah. saying something and, and I'm developing what my argument is going to be, what my response is going to be, you know, in my mind while, while I'm speaking to them. And I think for many of us, we've been doing that for so long that we don't know another way. Like we really have to train ourselves to, to let that go. Yeah. Well, you know, yoga is just that giving up the ways that didn't work and training ourselves to new ways and deep compassionate listening is a new way and we need to train ourselves. And it's very, very difficult. 
to me, it's one of the hardest things because I get a lot of knowledge about things because I'm primarily centered up here. And so I know how to fix everything, right? But she doesn't need fixing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's hard. That's hard to watch the your your closest beloved go through such pain. You know how to fix it, but she doesn't need fixing. So you don't fix that way. In in relationship, we fix with love. Yeah, so, someone made me aware at one point don't that even, don't even call it fixing. No. <laughs> yeah. Someone made me aware at one point that, you know, that, that men tend to have this tendency to want to fix things. I never really considered that before, but I paid attention afterwards. And I think that there might be some, some truth behind it. Definitely for myself. I have that, man, I really want to fix things. Um, And it's, it's a practice letting, letting that part go. Well, we do want to fix things and that's not a bad thing. It's just that Mm -hmm. we, we need to fix the right things, you know, fix the door when the doorknob's broken, you know, make sure that you've, you've fixed enough food in the refrigerator, <laughs> make sure the car has gas in it when she needs it in the morning, right? Um, make sure that the things that we fix are things that she needs fixing for her life to run well, right? Yeah. And, but don't fix her. <laughs> she doesn't need fixing. <laughs> She's fine the way she is. In but- fact, she- she may be in a lot of ways way better than you. <laughs> right. What if, what if we take that more to a, like a, a worldly level, right? Because I think we can, we can hear about a lot of the things that are, that are happening on our planet and then also want to fix it. Like, you know, there's just all these terrible things going on. You know, I want to fix it. But does the same thing hold true, right? Like nature <laughs> doesn't need us, each of us to fix it. Um, but at the same time, it's like, there, there's something I think to be said for doing your part, right? It's like this, this balance between, between those two, two things. So for me, I could say, you know, what I'm working on is accepting how things are having total faith in the unfoldment and, and humility for me to not be able to understand why things are happening the way that they are. Now, at the same time, if I can be grounded in that place, maybe I'll take some action that that feels right, that might might lead to some good. Um, yeah. Yes. If, if uh, you know, we look at a problem and we try to throw a physical solution at it, it oftentimes doesn't work because the problem is not the physical physical solution. The problem is the emotional pain behind it. We want to get down in and find the emotional pain, but emotional pain is not something you can fix with words or you can fix with any kind of effort. It's a kind of thing that only gets fixed with love and with spaciousness and with acceptance. Mm-hmm. So in the world, you know, for instance, you know, we have all these blowups that are happening right now. And you look at these things, people are very emotional while they're doing it. So they've taken some there's some idea that's in their consciousness about the way things should be. And then the emotion, the pain of it, it starts coming out and it starts coming out in violence. It starts coming out in arguments. It starts coming out in fighting. It starts coming out in criticizing each other, hating each other even. So we can't solve that problem with any particular action, though some things will help a lot. So we don't want to give up that action, but, 
we need to primarily solve that with release, relief of the pain that's in people. Hmm. If we can do that, then the people are fully capable of solving their own problems. Hmm. Because they, in fact, more so than us, because they know intimately what their problem is. We don't. Right. But through that, that, that love, you know, through love, through acceptance, through compassion, through listening, deep listening, through service, you know, and by service, service doesn't fix, service just does what's in front of it, right? So through service, we can do that. Mm. Ah, thank you. I don't know, it feels, feels like a lot to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sure, well. Uh, anything else that that you feel uh called to to share in this moment well i would just like to encourage everyone to take up whatever spiritual practice appeals to them whatever that is and make a little application each day toward that it's like putting money in the bank if you put a couple of pennies in the bank every day by the end of 10 years you have some money so everyone, if we can just put a little effort into this, we're going to have success with it eventually. To be patient with ourselves because the mind is like trying to control the wind and the mind must be put under control, our control. Just like driving a car, you have to have your hands on the wheel at least for a few more years, then they're gonna drive themselves. But you have to be driving the car and be present with the car and be paying attention. And you can't just do that 98% of the time. You can't take your hands off the wheel 2% of the time. So be present with the mind. Watch it. Understand it. Because once the mind is deeply understood, it's a very small step over to realization. Hmm. And in realization, what are you? Love. Just pure love. Hmm. I could add, it makes me think about um, one of the, the practices I have is, is remembering um, to kind of view myself as uh, my own like safekeeper in a, in a way, right? So like the, the higher part of myself is, uh, is, is, is seeking to take care of Avi in a way with knowledge that if everyone does that, if everyone really takes care of themselves uh, and is their own safekeepers, things will go really well because as you said about uh, different locations and people's problems, like we know what we need more than anyone else does, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah. And not only do you take care of yourself, but be the best to take care of things around you in a gentle, serviceful way. You know, when, when the car needs gas in it, put gas in it, and the oil needs change, change the oil. When the air needs put in the tires, put the air in the tires. I'm just using this as a small example of everything in your life. Take care of what's around you. And then when the time comes for you to use it, it will be there ready, easy to use. Hmm. You know, feed, feed your body, rest your body, do hatha, do meditation, go to the beach once in a while, go to the mountains, take walks, take care of the body and mind. It needs to be in prime condition 
to to really live the the natural life, what I what we call the natural life, the Sahaja Samadhi. Hmm. Just living in a loving, kind, serviceful, purposeful, gentle, wise way. Gentle way. Hmm. The body needs to be healthy for that. The house needs to be clean. If you're constantly, if you look for an hour because you've lost your keys, how are you going to serve? Have a hook to hang your keys on. Every time you come in, (laughs) hang them in the same place. Then when you get ready to leave, the keys are right there. And so it's just taking care of the things around you brings harmony into life. It brings a deep harmony into your existence. Right. I would say that that's another, even another element of, of taking care of yourself. So by taking care of what's around you, you're also taking care of yourself through that action. Yes, because everything is yourself. Hmm. Everything is yourself. You know, in a way, we're one self. And if I take care of you, I'm taking care of me. And realizing that makes it a lot easier to lead with love. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Gurdjieff said this, once you see the self in all, then there's no question about how you're going to feel. You're going to love. So. Uh, thanks so much again, Reverend Bhagavan. Yeah. Um, if, if people would like to uh, be in touch with you, what's the best way? Oh, they can, they can PM me on Facebook. I'm still on Facebook. Uh, they can, my number's in the Yogaville phone book. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm available through those ways. So they can call me, email me, revbhagavanmetro at gmail.com. So okay. if anyone needs anything, I'm happy to serve and do what I can. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Thanks so much. I, I could say for myself, like just you've been a wonderful example for me uh, to be around. You know, it really, it really is so nice. One of my favorite parts about living here is is people like, but people like you, and you know, you officiated my wedding, and just having your presence there is. I mean, it it changed the whole the whole experience. So, um, but that's all from doing your own work. Right. So, I mean, I'm just basically saying that I appreciate you diving so fully and genuinely um, into into yoga the way that you have. Thank Uh, you, Avi. And I appreciate you being here and uh, doing your job and serving your family. You know, if we just serve our family, every family will grow up healthy hmm. or as healthy as they can be. There's still challenges for people as adults. We have to let that in. But. They'll be as good as they can be if we serve them. Amen. Thanks again. Okay. Bye-bye. Om Shanti. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this content and think others might as well, please feel free to share and subscribe.